dear brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I got something. I want to show it to you. Oops. There it is. I talked about it a few weeks ago. My desk calendar. Not that much on it. But all I want to point out to you, it's just an ordinary desk calendar. This number. 2023. Why doesn't it say something else? I mean, pick an event in world history that you would mark the time that has gone on since then. Anywhere. It could be the East, the West, Africa, whatever. What would you pick? The whole world has kind of settled on 2023. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that date. Um, The calendar we follow now is called a Gregorian calendar. It's a calendar that takes into account the fact that there's leap years, that the planet going around the sun didn't quite fit into what we thought before. Before it, there was something called a Julian calendar, Julian calendar didn't quite sync up with the planet. It's an inheritance from from the Romans. And for a long time, the Romans just dated time from somebody's reign to the present. Well, it wasn't until about 525 that a monk started writing down something that really caught on. He, he was making a, a calendar or a table, really, about when Easter would show up. When would be the date of Easter? And he started using the, the term A.D., which means... Good, good. Somebody was listening over the years. That's always a trick question I throw at my, at my confirmants because you want to buy after death, but it's not English. It's Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And it really kind of caught on since then. Now, he had tried to calculate exactly the birth of Jesus. He came up with what we now use as the beginning. Oddly enough, there is no year zero. There's just 1 AD, and the year before that was 1 BC. There's no zero in between. But we think they kind of messed up. He didn't quite have the information, and it's still really debated as to when Jesus was born. Personally, after looking at some of the data, I think the best guess is actually what we would call 2 B.C. So it's 2025 if you want to go to your calendar and take out the three. and I mean, it's just not worth that hassle, right? But it still points out to the very fact that Jesus is, and this is correctly said, Jesus is the pinnacle of history. Says who? That says a lot of people, really. So many people, they the only time they know Jesus is when they stub their toe, right? Then, then suddenly his name comes out. But we want to just speak about the details. And like I said, I think the people in this crowd uh, probably know 
most or all of this. Maybe maybe that's not true for some of the people watching online. But, but it is good and right that we speak about the details about why Jesus is important enough that we not only bear his name and, and serve him, but place our hope in him for eternal life and, amongst the minor things that we do, have a calendar that connects to his birth. So, how does the event unfold? Today, in our Old Testament lesson, we had a very interesting prophecy that I'm sure many of you have heard before. But it's a weird one, as prophecies tend to be. It speaks about the coming of a virgin birth, but then speaks about a child who eats curds and honey after a certain amount of time. And it's given as a sign to to uh, the king, Ahaz, that, that God's going to take care of enemies that are coming from his north. And Ahaz doesn't want to get a sign, because Ahaz is a jerk. That's why. And Isaiah's just put up with it, can't put up with him. God's kind of had it with him. He said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And Alma, that's the Hebrew word, will give birth to a child. Now, I think it ends up being a double entendre. Because the word Alma in Hebrew can mean young woman or mean virgin. At one time, that was synonymous. There probably was a young woman who had a child during Isaiah's life, and after a while, he ate off the land because the enemies were destroyed. But everybody amongst the Jews who came after this point all understood that that prophecy was about somebody who was coming, a virgin birth, a virgin birth. Now, even if you knew a virgin birth was happening, if it happened to your fiance, would you believe her? And I think the uniform answer amongst the guys in the room here would be no. No. I may not believe the worst about her, you know, that she's playing around. But I might believe that she had been raped and so traumatized that, that she's now claiming a virgin birth. And that's probably what Joseph believed and why he was going to put her, divorce her silently to what kind of life, I don't know. But it took an angel, and that's what he got to tell him, no, this is that virgin birth, the one in Isaiah. This is really something of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think about it, the virgin birth was spoken of in Isaiah as a sign, well, it's a pretty crummy sign, right? Who's going to believe a lady who claims to be a virgin and is pregnant? So a sign, it really isn't much. But a practical consideration, it is very much. Because God's plan needs a certain kind of person. God's plan needs a sinless human being. And where are you going to go to find that? There isn't one. There hasn't been one since Adam and Eve. What Adam and Eve did messed them up, not just in their behavior, but in their genetics, so that everyone who descends from them, and that is everyone, carries around the same problem. 
And we call it sinful nature. And it's not just a concept, it's a fact. Our bodies build out from that genetics to be selfish, to be driven by desires that lead us to sin. It is inescapable. By the time you figure out what's right and what's wrong, you've already done a ton of wrong. You are wrong. And sinful nature isn't just the potential for sin. In God's eyes, it's damage done and unacceptable and outside the kingdom of God. Now, does that seem super unfair as somebody who's dealing with it himself? Yes, it does. But that's kind of a reason why God does what he does. To reach out in pity for our unfortunate situation. Now, the other reason why Jesus had to be a virgin birth is that he is God in the flesh, God incarnate. This being who was powerful enough to create the universe somehow has to take on a human body to perform several functions. One, he has to have the law apply to him. Two, he has to actually keep that law for his entire life. Three, he has to be able to die and die a specific way. So God becomes incarnate, and he becomes incarnate, uh, and then born in a certain place. Scripture pointed out it's going to be in Bethlehem. That anybody who read the Bible knew at the time of Jesus. It had to be Bethlehem because that's David's town. David was given a certain promise. But notice how God gets Mary and Joseph into Bethlehem. It isn't just people who grow up there. And people didn't move that much back then. God certainly knew that that Satan would be looking hot and heavy for this Messiah. That while this is a plan that God himself must have known was going to work, yet in the practice of it, it was a plan that could fail. Certainly Satan was going to try to make it fail. So Mary and Joseph come about kind of a sneaky way, in the back door, kind of in the back room, really hidden away, just for safety's sake. Now, that's not the only thing that would point them out. Wise men noticed certain things happening in the stars. What did they notice? They noticed certain constellations coming together that kind of told a story. And then they saw certain stars come close to each other and actually wind their way through the constellations. Now, these are not supernatural occurrences, but they don't happen hardly ever. God had put the whole universe into motion so that this would happen at a particular time. 
And it wasn't what you get on your postcards or your Christmas cards. You know, a giant star with like a beam that comes down and touches Jesus. Yeah, that's not it. It was something small enough that the standard goofball, like Herod, for instance, wouldn't have noticed at all. It took somebody who studied the stars to notice it. And yet it was definitely there. And they came, and they worshipped, and they got out of there. Because Herod was the one under the control of Satan. And Mary and Joseph got out of there too. So on the ground, there is fanfare, but as little fanfare as possible. For now, the biggest move in the whole history of the world. God was bringing it. He wasn't prophesying about it anymore. He was going to do it. And what's going to happen? Well, in a way, it's a war. But it is not your conventional warfare. Jesus, a sinless little human being, now under God's own law, would keep that law for what would be, I would say, 35 years, most likely. Makes a lot of sense. God's got this thing about three and a half, right? The fact that it's three and a half decades, I think, is not surprising at all. He would keep that law. Notice how it's different for him than it, than it is for us. I have to struggle with temptation. The vast majority of that temptation comes internally, right? And that's the same for you. On top of the internal temptation, there is external temptation created by other people. Sometimes other people intentionally being that provocative, and sometimes just the fact that they're lousy drivers, you know? And it tempts you. Then on top of it, that's not enough. You got Satan and Satan's kingdom using as much control as they can muster to move your mind in an ugly direction. And they're good at their job. Let's give them credit for that. Jesus doesn't have the internal temptation. And because he's the incarnate son of God, I'm going to guess he understood his purpose right from the get-go. I mean, from infancy. And so external temptation, he had to fight it. It was definitely there. The people brought it. Satan brought it. It was more than what you find in the scripture. It was every day, especially the final days, To get him to mess up, all he has to do is mess up once. And the whole species goes right down the tubes as far as God's law. But he doesn't. He doesn't at all. He sticks to it. In fact, the whole plan is executed, like I said, in some extent out of pity for us. Because we weren't there at the Garden of Eden. We're just related to him. And down the line came our damnation. It isn't a small thing at all. So fairness and pity, but more than that, God has a heart for human beings. God has a heart 
for you. So when Jesus takes it, he takes the football of keeping God's law all the way into the end zone, and he keeps it for you. And then the last thing about you know, his life stands out the biggest. He not only had to keep the law that long, that perfectly, he had to take what we've already built up for ourselves. The condemnation that comes on us as individuals, both the people that existed before the time of Jesus, his contemporaries, and everybody who would come after, including the people in this room, God's law says you must be forsaken. And so when Jesus goes to the cross... He is tempted to the very end by the brutal treatment that he receives. But then he has to take the worst of it. And the worst of it is to be forsaken. And how long does that last? I don't know. My guess, again, I'm going to guess three and a half hours. Or something close to that. From noon to three something. And when he does that and finishes it, it means that you don't have to do it at all. And that is a big deal. It's huge. Huge. The only thing that remains now, and the reason why we're even here anymore, is that this whole benefit has to get connected to people. Sinfulness got connected to you by birth. The righteousness of Jesus needs to be connected to you as well. And it is connected in a thing like that. By your baptism into Jesus' death, God does something to connect you to Jesus so that his righteousness, his suffering becomes yours. And that was true as well for, I I don't know how many people, thousands probably, who lived before Jesus and were considered righteous. They didn't just waltz into heaven. They all knew that they were going to Sheol. They didn't know what their experience was like, and we have very little information what it was like, other than it was, quote-unquote, comforting. We get that from one story of Jesus. They had to wait. They had to cool their jets until Jesus had completed the sacrifice for sins. And then they were sprung as well. And we kind of sang about it in the very first hymn. They got to go and we get to go to a destination that wasn't even on the table for human beings. You go and find for me a promise in the Old Testament that human beings are going to be in heaven and you will just waste your time because it is not there. It wasn't where we were going to be. All we had the promise of was the resurrection and even then pretty vague as to whether the resurrection was going to be a good thing or not. It all hung on this one man, this one man we are celebrating. And the completion of a plan that existed from before there was a problem to get rid of. That's how God works. And that execution of that plan and the connection to people 
continues to this day. And it will continue until God feels that's enough. Now, one of the things I griped about, right, the very outset, the the problem that I'm most concerned about is that people don't see the importance of Jesus. It gets overwhelmed in our society, right? I mean, even, even this. Do you watch history shows? And when they refer to something that happens before Christ, what do they say? They say a year, and then what do they say? B, C, E. Before the common era. Gee, what's missing in before the common era? Christ. In Christmas, what's often missing for many families? Christ. How easy, how short a time does it take to get from a point in a family where a family knows that Jesus is their Savior to a point in that family, maybe a generation or not even a generation down, where they just say, I don't really see the value of this. I don't know how it's relevant. You know, we live in a fast-paced world where things are changing all the time. I got movies sitting in a closet I can't even watch because I don't have a player for them anymore. Right? Things are becoming obsolete very fast, within decades. How about something that's 2,000 years old? Certainly there has to be salvation 2.0 by now. But God doesn't change like we do. It's still salvation 1.0. There still is one way to eternal life. Whose birth was roughly 2,025 years ago. And we need to express that to the people around us. We need to remind it to ourselves. We need to show it in our lives. We need to show it in our office space and in our yards. Jesus, that's who matters. It makes all the difference. It means eternal life. Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we ask that he would help us. Amen.